<coughs> well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the panel discussion on non-academic careers uh, with a psychology degree. Uh, first of all, let me start by telling you that one of our panelists, uh, Dr. Jane Kasserman, uh, was unable to be here today uh, because of a, of a sudden uh, medical emergency in her family. Uh, luckily, however, uh, Dr. Gina Ligon, whom some of you may recognize because she is, a, in fact, a member of the Department of Psychology here at Villanova, uh, agreed to step in uh, on short notice, uh, even though she's not an alum. We decided that the content was more important than the theme of everybody being an alumnus of the department. Um, anyway, just uh, ground rules here. Uh, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to introduce each panelist uh, immediately after the introduction, the panelist uh, will get up and say a few words uh, about his or her career. Basically, they'll say whatever they want to say. Um, and then after, and then I'll introduce the next panelist and we'll go on. And once all of the panelists have been introduced and they've all had their opportunity to make some introductory remarks, uh, then uh, the floor will be open to questions and uh, you guys can ask anything your hearts desire. Uh, so with that, um, I guess we might as well begin. Now, regardless of the order in which they're seated up here, my notes are in alphabetical order, so that's the way we're going to introduce them. So uh, the first panelist that I'm going to introduce is uh, Mr. Paul Allen. Um, uh, he graduated uh, magna, uh, magna cum laude with his BA in psychology in 1979. Uh, he subsequently earned his uh, Juris Doctor a degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, so he is a practicing attorney. He's currently one of the managing partners uh, of uh, a center city law firm with a whole bunch of names, uh, Obermeyer, uh, Reedman, Maxwell, and Hippel. Uh, Mr. Allen, uh, Mr. Allen's practice uh, focuses uh, uh, in particular on real estate law. Uh, but he's also the co-chair of the firm's business uh, and finance department. Uh, so please welcome Mr. Paul Allen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Tom didn't tell me I'd have to stand up to make this speech. Well, you, you don't. You can go back and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm here. Uh, I came to Villanova uh, and majored in psychology. I thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist or perhaps get into HR, uh, human resources. Uh, and uh, through some misadventure, I wound up in law school and practicing law. And uh, interestingly, I, I often think how much the training I had here and, and just my interest in psychology and what I know about psychology has played a part in what I do every day. Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, negotiating leases, uh, agreements of sale for real estate, that sort of thing. And uh, anytime you're in an adversarial uh, position and uh, dealing with other people, it helps to have some basic understanding of, of what's making them think. And um, you'd be surprised how many lawyers simply lack that, any, any basis for that kind of an understanding. And uh, maybe you wouldn't, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, is, it is truly uh, an asset to uh, try to get basically approach negotiation not as, a, as an argument, but as a, uh, trying to get to know people, the person on the other side, and figure out why they're thinking the way they're thinking, and uh, uh, make your points 
that way as a, uh, someone who's more on their side than uh, on the opposite side coming at them uh, in a, in a, uh, a warlike manner, as some attorneys try to do. Um, I also do, as Tom mentioned, a lot of administrative work in the firm, and uh, that's where I wind up doing the HR kind of uh, uh, work that I thought I might be interested in doing, and, and in fact, I, I do enjoy that part of it um, in terms of dealing with people running the department, uh, dealing with uh, disputes among attorneys, uh, secretarial issues, uh, hiring and firing people, uh, the latter being the, the least enjoyable part of it. Um, and uh, again, uh, interpersonal relationships and, and uh, understanding people uh, helps, helps a great deal on that. Uh, so that's a brief overview. Okay, our next uh, panel member is uh, Dr. Ann Brochin. Um, she graduated from Villanova with an MS degree in psychology in 1985. Uh, she earned her Ph.D. in school psychology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, in the course of doing that, she completed a clinical pre-doctoral internship at the New England Memorial uh, Hospital. Subsequently, she earned another master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. She liked school. Uh, from the, this was from the Massachusetts uh, School of Professional Psychology. Uh, Dr. Brochin is a licensed uh, psychologist in the state of Massachusetts and currently is in private practice working primarily with children and adolescents. Uh, please welcome Dr. Ann Brochin. I was so happy when I heard from Tom about the opportunity to be here today. Um, Villanova has been so important to me in my career in many ways. At Villanova, I worked in Tom's lab on research about the spacing effect. Since school-age children were our subjects, I went to the local schools to assess children's memory for lists of words. An older graduate student a year or so ahead of me had told me that this was to be a boring assistantship. However, I soon found that I loved going to the schools and evaluating these children. It was so interesting to me to see how children varied in their attempts to recall the words and how they related to me as an examiner. So I wrote my essays for applications to doctoral programs about that experience and went from Villanova to the University of North Carolina in 1985, earning a doctoral degree in school psychology in 1989. Villanova readied me for the demands of a doctoral program in a way that was evident to my professors and to me. I was the first to finish my dissertation in my class, and I experienced far fewer headaches than the other students in my class. The, the thesis process at Villanova was very similar to the process of the dissertation. I was able to generate a research study pretty independently, though I will confess to having had to go through a few committee meetings before one was accepted. Since Tom had helped me publish my master's thesis, I had the confidence to pursue publication of my dissertation. More importantly, I entered my doctoral program understanding the culture and demands of graduate level work and what I needed to do to be successful which I think helped me fit in better than most of my classmates. I remember Tom and my professors being incredibly available and supportive. They were truly invested in helping students prepare for the next step after the master's degree, whatever that step was for each individual student. My doctoral program celebrated its 40-year anniversary two years ago, and I went down to the University of North Carolina to attend. I ran into my dissertation chairperson, Barbara Wasick, during a break. She hugged me and then said, she still uses me as an example of someone who finished their program in four years, adding, 
that master's thesis really helped prepare you. And she was recollecting this 20 years after I finished my degree. I am currently in private practice, but I see my professional life is evolving. I think one of my favorite aspects of my prof professional life has been the opportunity to pursue new interests as they arise. I see college-age students in therapy, an area of practice I actually developed by accident, and I conduct neuropsychological evaluations of children and adolescents with very, various learning, social, emotional, and developmental disabilities. For the past 14 years, I have worked with a law firm whose founding partners drafted the original special education law in the state of Massachusetts, which actually became the model for the federal law, uh, the Individual with Disabilities Education Act. I'm an expert witness in cases in which parents are not getting special education services from their public school that they need for their children. So I participate or I'm an expert witness in hearings and legal proceedings on behalf of these children and families. In 2006, I earned a second master's degree in psychopharmacology to enable me to better consult with my, with my patients about medication as part of their treatment. And most recently, I have actually been meeting with the folks at Boston University who are doing research on head injuries in football. You may have seen the cover of Sports Illustrated November 1st or recent articles in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Last week, there was even an article in People Magazine um, referencing a study in which Ann McGee, or a series of studies in which Ann McGee and uh, Bob Stern had been able to get NFL players uh, to donate their brains for research. Um, the early results indicate increased levels of tau, a protein in the brain that when it accumulates um, in the cell causes death of neurons and actually simulates uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, these folks are finding this even among players who died when they were very young. The research got a good deal of press following the recent suicide of Dane Dwarson, um, who was suffering from dementia at age 50 and shot himself in the heart um, in order that his brain could be preserved and sent to this group of folks. Um, and I've actually been meeting at that with them because they're interested in looking at the findings of neuropsychological assessment on those with brain injuries so that we can document various uh, types of uh, functional uh, deficits in, in uh, that correlate with these brain injuries. Um, so I'm excited to see where this will go as my next stage of my career. Um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk with you today about Villanova's place and importance. Thanks, Ann. Okay, our next uh, panel member is Mr. Thomas Donovan, who graduated from Villanova with an MS degree in psychology in 1977. Uh, several years later, he joined the Philadelphia Fire Department, from which he recently retired. Um, while serving in the Fire Department, uh, Mr. Donovan held a, a long list of, of high-level rankings, captain, battalion, chief, um, etc. Uh, well, he, he held the lower ones uh, to get there, right? Uh, in any event, if I understand it correctly, though, uh, by the time he retired, uh, he had served in every high-ranking uh, position in the fire department that was not dependent on a political appointment. Uh, when he retired, uh, he was serving as the deputy chief of the fire prevention division. Uh, in his retirement, he has developed and is disseminating a driver training safety program uh, designed to help make American roads uh, safer. So please welcome Mr. Thomas Donovan. Thank you. I'm going to give just one note on driving safety, and, and then I know he doesn't want to talk about that, but uh, it's the leading cause of death, up to age 34. Uh, you are at the age where that's the most likely way you kill yourself. Uh, we don't kill people in fires, we kill them on the road, so that's that's why I do that now, but uh, try to be a little safe in the driving. 
In honor of the psychology department's 50th anniversary, I'd like to talk about the contributions made to my career by two Villanova professors, one of whom is here today, and I'm very happy for that. In doing so, I hope to give you students an example of how beneficial a quality graduate psychology education can be for any career choice, and I'm probably about as far afield from psychology as you can go. Online degrees excluded. I gained two highly useful skills here at Villanova thanks to these two teachers. The first skill is critical thinking. The psychology professor at Villanova who best and most completely fostered critical thought in her students during my years here was Dr. Inga Ward. And for those of you who know Dr. Ward, Dr. Ward not only taught critical thinking, she personified it. Her unflinching critical approach to examining research methodology was conveyed in every class she gave. And because of Dr. Ward's devotion to her teaching and to her research, I learned to develop my own set of critical skills. I'm certain that many of her students have benefited in a similar fashion. Now, there are a number of examples I could give you of Dr. Ward's influence on my work, but Dr. Tapino would ask for something colorful. So I'm going to try to be as colorful as I can. <laughs> uh, here is a cover story from the Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. Uh, dated uh, one year and one week after 9-11, when it was very hard to get a cover story in anything uh, but 9-11. Uh, uh, if you can't see, I'll read the heading to you briefly. Endangered Treasures, Long-Standing Fire Code Violations at Art Museum Leave Priceless Works at Risk. Lack of sprinklers in storage areas poses a deadly threat to firefighters. The uh, problem with the Philadelphia Museum of Art when I first inspected it in 1995 was quite simple, and I suppose most of you at least have seen the building driving by it. The building was in a perfect condition to burn up completely and fully, leaving only the masonry walls standing. The relevant part of this story for uh, our discussion is that I was the first person to come along and notice this long-standing, ready-to-burn state of the museum. And after the Inquirer article came out, the question everyone was asking was why had this unacceptable condition and big time fire code violation gone unreported for 50 years? In 50 years it, it should have been addressed. And the simple answer is that no one equipped with Dr. Ward's critical vision had taken a look at the museum's subgrade levels, which are quite large. To make a long story even shorter, after six years of inaction by the city and the museum, I found a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Al Lebrano, and with a, some slight help from me, I'll produce this newspaper article. I was certain that the article would fix the museum's problems, and you can probably imagine why. People who donate their fortunes to the museum to buy the art were on the phone. And the result was that the problems were fixed within one year, after 50 years of not much being done. While I certainly appreciate the value and importance of the art in the museum, for me, the biggest issue was the number of firefighters that would be sent into the subgrade levels of the museum were a fire to start there and the subgrade levels had all the problems. Because it would not be possible to fight a fire in the subgrade levels, which is why they were required to be sprinkled, the deaths of responding firefighters was a foregone conclusion. Firefighters would be sent, and you can kind of picture it, regardless of the consequences, given the importance of the property. And there was much more art in the basement levels than you see upstairs. Dr. Inga Ward, on behalf of myself and the Philadelphia Fire Department, present and future, I can't thank you enough. The second tremendously useful career tool I gained thanks to the Villanova Psychology faculty was the ability to write formal, publishable expository prose, in short good English. My last 13 years with the PFD was spent at Fire Headquarters, where the well-written report letter or memorandum 
could actually accomplish change in the physical world. And that's probably true in any large organization. The psychology department faculty member who put me on the path to gain this important tool was Dr. Porter Tuck. Dr. Tuck, like Dr. Ward, had a larger-than-life presence in the Villanova psychology department. Porter spoke with a charming southern accent, and he had a gentlemanly demeanor to go with it, both of which he could use to put you at ease just before he pointed out how poorly your brain was working. <laughs> <laughs> but Porter also let you know that he expected more from you, that you were capable of improvement if you would simply put in the effort. And I would really encourage all of you to put in the effort now because you won't have this opportunity again. Dr. Tuck launched my journey to writing proper writing skills with just six words. After reviewing the draft of my thesis proposal, he saw me in the hall one day and gave his opinion of my writing. Tommy said, quote, it's a piece of sh dot dot exclamation point. <laughs> and of course, as far as the writing went, Dr. Tuck was absolutely correct, as he always was. Porter's comment affected me strongly. It had its desired result. I got off my lazy writing ass and in time learned to write well. Eventually, I even had a short stint as a freelance writer before I got hooked on poetry, which is really useless. <laughs> Most of you don't remember the Philadelphia Inquirer magazine. If you think of a, a poor cousin to the New York Times Sunday magazine, uh, that's what this was. It was not easy to get published in it, and more difficult still to get a cover story. Uh, I thought that I finally had gotten to the level where I could have gotten Porter's approval for my writing, and that was important to me. Uh, nevertheless, my most important writing was saved for my office memos, where Porter's writing skills had an important influence on the city. The physical structures for fire protection today in hundreds of buildings in the city of Philadelphia are vastly improved through the writing skills that first began with Dr. Tuck's stage advice to me in a Tollentine hallway. I remain ever grateful for Dr. Tuck's assistance, and likewise, I'm extremely grateful to the Villanova University and the graduate psychology program that was in place back in the mid-70s. And the professor, the uh, chairman, chairperson, who put uh, that faculty together, which was so helpful to all of us, was Dr. Dan Sigler, who is here with us today, who I owe many thank yous to. Uh, and lastly, I have to thank Dr. David Bush, who's here today. Dave helped bring me here as a graduate assistant, and without that assistantship, I could not have attended Villanova, and my life would be much different. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Well, our next panelist was to have been Dr. Jane Casterman, as I mentioned before, who is a management consultant. Uh, rather than leave this area unrepresented uh, in this panel discussion, though, uh, Dr. Jane Oligan uh, agreed to fill in on short notice. I mean, we're talking like 24-hour notice. Um, this was really uh, uh, wonderful. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, Dr. Oligan received her PhD in uh, uh, industrial and organizational psychology from the University of Oklahoma. Uh, at Villanova, uh, her research is focused primarily on leadership and creativity in the workplace. Um, her ability to fill in for Dr. Kasserman, however, uh, extends beyond her academic expertise. Uh, before coming to Villanova, Dr. Ligon had direct experience working in consulting, uh, management consulting. Uh, she was the director of performance consulting uh, for a firm named Psychological Associates located in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, so, uh, please welcome Dr. Gina Living. So, I'm not an alum, so I have no one to thank. No, at least not, not, not anyone here um, yet. Um, I, will, I will thank you eventually someday when you invite me back, maybe. But um, 
I, uh, I too wanted to be a clinical psychologist when I was an undergrad and uh, was dissuaded from that career field by my dad, who's a clinical psychologist. <laughs> and uh, so I chose industrial and organizational psychology because it was a route for me to apply psychology, which is ultimately what I wanted to do. And I spoke with a um, gentleman who was an incumbent in the field. He was a pretty big name at University of Tennessee. Uh, in IO psychology, he will go unnamed at this time, um, because he told me, he asked me, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to go applied or do you want to go academic? And I said, you know, I don't know. I like both of them. And he said, well, you have to choose. You have to choose. Right now, you have to choose. And I have to tell you, I still haven't chosen. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'm an enigma, I guess. But um, when I left University of Oklahoma, I did work at a management consulting firm called Psychological Associates, and it was a wonderful, wonderful first job. Um, I worked about 70 hours a week, and I know that because one of the aspects of management consulting is that it's billable hours, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, so every month you have a new billing goal that you have to meet, and you have to be billing someone for your time. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of, um, of hard work, and and uh, it starts over every month. It's an, every month is an, a new game to be able to try to, to reach your billing goals. Um, like uh, Dr. Tapino mentioned, I am actually from Oklahoma, and I hadn't traveled very much. And um, my consulting firm took me to wonderful places. I, I got to go up to Manhattan at least twice a month to work with some of the nation's largest retailers. Um, and some of the things I was doing was uh, training first-line leaders, supervisors, on how to give positive feedback to their associates on the store floors. And you know, it was just amazing how these people had no idea how to you know, just give a thumbs up when they saw someone doing a good job. And that was my role as a management consultant, was to educate them on the power of positive feedback and how to give it, as well as how to appropriately give candid feedback and, um, or developmental, developmental conversations, as we called them. Um, I also got to go to uh, Powder Bluff, Wyoming, which was probably my favorite place to go, and that was a coal mine. And um, one of the things that I was charged with there was to do a job analysis. Part of being an IO psychologist is uh, applying um, psychology to understand the nature of work for all kinds of different initiatives that you might implement in the workplace. And so they sent me with a master's, a, a person, a junior consultant who had a master's degree to this coal mine. Little did I know it was a mile underground and we had to do a job analysis, meaning that we had to follow around the coal mine supervisor and document everything that he did um, and, you know, the, the machines he worked with, how often he worked with the people. And so they start giving me all this equipment, these hard hats and this hideous suit. And, you know, I go down and I'm the only woman in, you know, ever, ever, because there's all, all men down there and they look at you like you're some strange animal. And then, you know, there's big rocks falling all around you. I've never thought I was in so much danger, but no one else was running, so I stayed. And, um, you know, it was, and so what I did then is I got, I got back up to the ground and I'm okay, and my job once I get back to the office then is to document the job tasks that these people were doing and then identify what the knowledge, skills, abilities, and personality characteristics that, that were needed to do those job tasks. And that's where the psychology comes into play, because they could tell me what they do, I could tell them what they need to be able to do it. So for future selection and training for those roles, I could do that. So um, another, another piece of management consulting, that, that's all for for-profit organizations. 
I also did management consulting to the government, um, and that was a very gratifying uh, piece of my work. Um, with the baby boomers all retiring, one of the big issues facing the federal government right now is a lack of people in high-ranking scientific positions. And so one of the things that the Department of Defense Intelligence Agency had asked us to do was to develop um, some measures of uh, creativity and integrity to be able to help identify people to move into those roles in a more expedited fashion because there's going to be a huge gap in the next 10 years. Um, so that was real gratifying work as well. Um, one other piece I wanted to touch on for you is, you know, to tell you how hard the work is, but how exciting the work is, but lastly, that you can do the work with a bachelor's, a master's, or a PhD. And I think that's exciting for Villanova psychology students to know. I actually have two students who um, I've worked with here at Villanova who have gone on to management consulting firms, and I emailed them in the last 24 hours to ask them how they're doing. Um, one of which was Brandon Fanny. Some of you might know him. Another uh, is Ryan, Ryan Barksta. Ryan Barksta is at Deloitte Consulting in Chicago. He tells me he works 80 plus hours a week right now and loves every minute of it. You know, he's single and, you know, just <laughs> traveling all over. Um, and then Brandon Fanny is at Capgemini, which is a management consulting firm. And he uh, said he works 75 plus hours a week, but um, it's a little bit less than Ryan. But he loves every moment of it as well. And then you can also do this with a master's degree, which is a, a nice benefit for you as well. Um, master's degree and bachelor's, what they're doing usually is applying what people with a PhD in the same firm might have developed. And so for me, going into a, a management consulting firm, I would design training programs or selection systems, and then you would have the bachelor's and the master's folks come out there and work with the client to get it implemented. So there are lots of different career, career fields for management consulting, so maybe if you're interested, I'm sticking around for the reception after. I think there's going to be food, so I can talk to you more at that as well. So thanks for your time. Okay, well, our next panelist is Dr. Melinda Parisi, who graduated summa cum laude from Villanova in 1990 uh, with a double major in psychology and honors. Uh, she subsequently received a master's from the University of Pennsylvania and her PhD in counseling psychology from Fordham University. Uh, she's a licensed psychologist in the state of New Jersey and currently she's the uh, director of the Eating Disorders Program at the University Medical Center in Princeton. So please welcome uh, Dr. Mindy Parisi. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, really an honor to be back at Villanova today. Um, I actually started, I, I fin finished up my bachelor's in, at Villanova working with Deb Kinjeski on um, um, measures of dieting and exercise self schemas. Uh, so there's been a, quite a thread to my uh, career uh, ending up in eating disorders. I always had an interest in it and kind of realized it as I was going, uh, going on through graduate school. and. Um, and joining the staff at uh, University Medical Center at Princeton, where I'm now the director. We have a 22-bed eating disorders program uh, where we um, admit patients with uh, primarily anorexia nervosa, but also bulimia nervosa. Um, and the, the patients that we see are um, among the most, um, most ill uh, with the disorder. Um, Eating disorders have a very high mortality rate. In fact, I went to a benefit dinner last night for the National Eating Disorders Association. And every time we go to those things, it's always, um, it's always 
good to go to them and good to meet with other professionals in the field. And National Eating Disorders Association actually includes family members, so it's always good to have to uh, <coughs> mingle with family members who have been affected by the disorder. But every time we go to one of these things, you always have to kind of think, okay, what's the story we're going to hear tonight? Um, because there's always somebody who has been um, unfortunately affected in, in fairly dramatic ways. And of course there was uh, last night, uh, someone spoke about losing her niece earlier that week. So um, they're, deadly, they're deadly illnesses. Um, but we do have treatments available and um, there is hope for for those with that. Um, so about what I do um, as a psychologist running the Eating Disorders Program, why a psychologist? Um, we have a multidisciplinary team. We have, um, we have therapists, which may be psychologists, social workers, um, uh, licensed counselors. We also have art therapists, a lot of different psychotherapy um, folks. But we also have dietitians on staff, many nurses, um, mental health associates with a bachelor's degree in psychology. Uh, Three or four physicians that we were, uh, three physicians that we have uh, that are permanent, as well as many consultants, consulting physicians that work with us. It's a um, we have teachers that work on our treatment team because we treat um, children and adolescents who have eating disorders, so they need to be kept, uh, you know, going along in school. Um, so we have a multidisciplinary team and a really diverse group of people working together uh, to, to treat our patients. So why a psychologist as a, a, to direct that? And I think a career in psychology really does give a unique set of skills for working in healthcare administration, particularly mental health care, but healthcare administration overall, in terms of critical thinking, um, as we talked about earlier, um, as well as being able to manage a large staff with uh, diverse backgrounds and sometimes some competing um, ideas and uh, agendas, so manage, uh, ma being able to manage that. Um, being able to look at what is current in treatment and what is evidence-based and being able to pull apart what are going to be the component, the most effective components in putting a treatment package together. Being able to critically review the research literature that's out there. Um, being able to look at your own quality data and be able to say, okay, what do we need to do differently? Where might there be some problems? And rather than just kind of taking stabs at the dark and say, let's try this or let's try this, looking at the data to say, okay, this is what the data is telling us. Um, this is what we'll try to see what we can do differently. And this is how we're going to evaluate it to see if it's working. And we spend a lot of time on that um, in terms of various kinds of quality measures, patient and family satisfaction measures, and things like that. Um, the one thing it, I didn't get a background in is we are moving, we are in the process of moving the hospital from our, where we are currently to a brand new state-of-the-art facility three miles down the road. Um, I could have used some background in architecture. <laughs> so anybody wants to offer me some uh, uh, information on healthcare planning and uh, space planning for uh, a, a, um, a medical environment, I would love to talk to you. So. Thank you for having me. Okay, our, our next uh, panelist is Mr. Wayne Robertshaw, who earned his um, MS degree in psychology in 1977. Uh, he currently is senior vice president with GFK, G, GFK Custom uh, Research North America, which is part of the GFK Group, the fourth largest market research firm in the world. Um, Mr. Robertshaw is an expert in uh, both quantitative and qualitative uh, 
research methods and has developed a number of innovative market research techniques. Uh, he has conducted custom research for federal and state agencies and for dozens of prominent U.S. corporations, including uh, DuPont, Ford Motor Company, AT&T, Bank of America, Kraft Foods, and the list goes on and on. Uh, please welcome Mr. Wayne Robert Shaw. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here, and it was great to be here uh, like 30 years ago. Um, I, I really liked getting my degree here at Villanova, and I found out that it is it has served me really well throughout my life. It really set me up. You know, when I was in, in Hartwick College getting my uh, degree in psychology, I also sort of almost had a double major in sociology. You know, I didn't really know what I was going to do, and the, and the college offered me an admissions job. Wayne, we want you to go out and sell our college to everybody in the Northeast. And I, Ah, $8,000, I don't know. So I applied to uh, this graduate program and I came here and then I was fortunate enough in my second year to get a teaching assistantship with, with Dr. Tapino, um, which eased the financial burden. And, uh, and it, it's really been great. Uh, I, I, once I graduated from here, I, again, I didn't know what I was going to do and everybody encouraged me to go get my PhD. So I applied to one program and I did get in. Uh, but I applied so late, there was no money left, so I would have to pay for it myself. So I said, oh, I don't know. So I, I opened up the Philadelphia Inquirer and I looked for a job. I bought, what color is your parachute? I bought a book and I looked for a job. I wrote a resume. And I'm reading the one ads out of the Philadelphia Inquirer and there's one for a project director. Associates for Research in Behavior. Do do background uh, information gathering, write a questionnaire, collect data, analyze the data, and write a report. And I said, my goodness, this is what I've been doing for the last six years in psychology, you know. And, uh, you know, I was taught how to write a good report. And, and believe it or not, when I very first started, our marketing research reports were written just like an APA, uh, American Psychological Association report, <coughs> with the background, the method, and, and the, the references, and, and I had it wired, and it was really great. So I didn't go there. I found this job, and uh, I said, yeah, I'll do this. And they said, well, you got to commit for a couple years. It's a big government job, and you know, we've got this three-year tracking program. And I said, okay. So uh, I work, start working on this big Department of Defense job. We were tracking the propensity of young people to join the National Guard and Reserve Forces, which back in the late 70s, the, the military had just gotten rid of the draft and went to an all-volunteer force. And they were trying to increase the quality of the recruits. They were getting a lot of, like, mental cat fours, I think they called them, and they wanted to, to get a higher level recruit uh, into the force. And so I spent a couple years working on that. It was, it was fascinating. We did like 5,000 telephone interviews around the country. I learned to do focus groups. I was doing focus groups with people uh, who had just joined, and, and they were at uh, basic training. And I went around to all these Army bases and Air Force bases, and I was interviewing these kids. And of course, I was a kid too. And finding out why they joined, trying to get into the motivations. And, and so I could go back and write my questionnaire so I could start tracking the propensity to enlist in, in the military. The first year I did it, it was real learning experience. The second year I did it, I was a well-oiled machine. And the third year I did it, I was bored out of my gourd. Uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. So they moved me into the commercial side of the market research company, working with DuPont. And I was put on the DuPont account. It was the longest, biggest uh, account for the company. And, they, and I've maintained them as a client for the last 34 years, too. Um, 
But now I was entering into commercial market research, and that's really what I came here to talk about. I really love my job. It's fun. It's interesting. It's varied. Um, I use all different kinds of methodologies, and I study all different kinds of topics, and I study all different kinds of people. I do focus groups, which I don't know if you know what they are. They're little group discussions, and I moderate them. I go, have to run around the country and, and get these small groups of 10 people together and talk about a particular issue, and then go back and write my insightful report about what is motivating everybody and how we can sell product to these people. Um, well, that, that's qualitative. Like most <coughs> of my life now, people are doing qualitative online with, you know, with the internet. There's online bulletin boards, online focus groups, and <coughs> not everything's in person anymore. Um, doing qualitative research, doing quantitative research. Um, you know, I, I really do many different things. Uh, I test television commercials and print ads and radio commercials for their advertising and communications effectiveness and their persuasiveness. Um, that is, there's many different techniques. I, 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 when I first joined the company and I was fresh out of Villanova, uh, <coughs> I was put on this, this study to test a radio commercial and I, I, I saw what they were doing at DuPont and I laughed at them. You know, my boss, you know, the boss is the owner of the company, he's with me and the, this big mahaf at DuPont and I sat there and I laughed <coughs> and he said, what are you laughing at? I said, this methodology is so transparent, the demand characteristics you know, they're, 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 the, the respondents know what we're trying to study, so they're going to guide their responses, and we're not really going to get the real dope. And they said, well, what would you do, Wayne? And so I designed a study where, and it, it really was quite clever, if I may say so myself, <laughs> where people came into a room and they didn't even realize that, you know, there was a radio in the corner playing as they walked into the room and it was playing music. And then we had them do this task that was hard and easy and easy and hard. And all, everything was rotated and balanced and it was an experiment. And uh, you know, now so they were doing the task, some radio commercials came on, you know, and then it went back to music and they're still doing their task. And then the game turns hard and they're listening to music, playing the game, and then some radio commercials come on. And then we take them out of the room at the end and we say, well, what did you think of that game you were playing? Bogus questions, foil questions, we don't really care. And then we said, well, did you notice a radio playing? Were there any commercials on there? Oh, there were? Well, what commercials were they? Can you describe them to me? Oh, who was the sponsor of that commercial? Oh. And we were able to do a real-world assessment of the ability of a radio communication to break through somebody's attention demand and to make an impression on their consciousness. And it was published in the Journal of Advertising Research in 1983. And I, I would never have brought that up because it's so old, but somebody just called me from uh, the board of the Radio Advertising Effectiveness Committee in New York and wanted a copy of it and I'm meeting with them and we're going to reopen a whole line of investigation. So that was kind of cool. So I do customer satisfaction surveys. You've probably participated in those. Uh, we've come up with unique, uh, unique methods to understand which attributes you should work on to increase customer satisfaction. Um, I do a lot of brand health study, brands, brand and communications. Uh, we track, uh, you know, for example, why do you buy Advil versus Motrin? You know, I study that. Why do you buy NyQuil versus uh, Robitussin? I study that. Why do you buy this credit card over that credit card? I study that. Uh, what are your perceptions of this brand, that brand? What, what's your perception of a company like the DuPont Company or AT&T or Verizon? I do that. Um, 
we do segmentation work. We do, like I noticed in one of the speeches before, you know, you, you were doing cluster analysis with anger management. I do cluster analysis with consumers. I do cluster analysis to find out what different kinds of groups do we have within the population and what kind of product would appeal to this, this cluster or segment or this cluster or segment. So it's used in a little bit different way. Or how can we better position, if this is the biggest segment out there, how can we position our product that we can sell more to this, to this consumer group? Um, I do brand positioning, product positioning, uh, new product development, uh, concept testing. Uh, come up with everything from brainstorming new, concept, new concepts for products to um, developing in, them into a formalized concept and testing those concepts. Weeding out the, the products now we don't want to bring to market and oh, these are the ones that we do. They show promise and then <coughs> we do like conjoint studies to optimize the messaging to improve the um, potential uh, uh, sales of the eventual of the product. So I don't know how much time I've got, but I'll just sum up that, you know, really what I learned here, everything applies to what I do. Everything. You know, from developing questionnaires and sequencing questions so you don't have biases to uh, theories of cognition and behavior and what motivates people to do things, especially by products and services, uh, consumer psychology, statistics, statistics, statistics. <laughs> I mean, I do quasi-experimental designs. I sometimes have the luxury of real experimental designs. Those are the real fun ones. Uh, a lot of correlational work. But you should learn your correlations, your, um, your uh, factor analysis, your regression, um, your ANOVAs, MANOVAs. Uh, and now what we're doing is applying structural, structural equations modeling to our data to try to get not just a correlational findings, but causal relationships. So it used to be, you know, we would everything be, well, if they say this, then they say this. Well, one goes with the other, but we don't know which one's causing it. And with the structural equations models, we can now say, we do this, then this, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to that, and then they're going to buy the product. And uh, it's very powerful uh, statistical modeling. And now we're even evaluating uh, a brand new area called belief, belief networks. And I haven't been briefed on that yet, but it looks really exciting. So, so the statistics, the technical side, really important. The writing side, you've got to write well. You've got to be able to communicate. You have to write succinctly. Uh, and then you also have to be able to present. You should learn how to speak in front of people, uh, present your ideas, present the results of the studies to management. We have CEOs, CMOs, CIOs, and CEIEIOs. -E you know, they're all out there. And you've got to get up, and you've got to present your results to them. And you have to do it convincingly and with confidence because you're the expert and they're gonna do what you say. If you say that you should spend 20 million more on advertising, you're only spending 20, you need to spend 40. And you have to convince him that he does. And they're looking for insights. So you have to be a good, not just a good writer, but a good critical thinker. So you can, you write your study, you design your study, and you take this data, this data, this da these results, put them together, be a little creative, and come up with a unique insight you can help that business make a decision that's going to improve their situation so they invite you back and do another study. So that's, uh, we, we've hired like 15 people from Villanova. Uh, ever since I got there, I've hired some of them you know. Um, I used to catalog their names. 
Uh, it's been tending, you know, mostly out of the master's program because I came here, so I was trying to help other people. But undergraduate's okay, master's is okay. If you want to get into this business, uh, do well, get really good grades, and uh, give us a call. Well, <clears throat> we come to our final panelist who uh, is probably used to being near the end of any alphabetical <laughs> list. And I, 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 I share his feelings of having my name begin. I'd, I'd even be behind him. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I, I toyed with uh, doing it in reverse alphabetical order just to get revenge. But uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> in any event, uh, our, our next panelist is uh, Mr. Mark Servadidio. Uh, he received his BA a degree in psychology uh, from Villanova in 1987. Uh, he subsequently earned his uh, MS from Villanova also from the Villanova uh, Human Resources Development Program, which many of you know is uh, affiliated with the psychology department in the sense that even though it is an independent academic program, uh, all of the full-time faculty members uh, in that program are members of the psychology de uh, department. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Servadidio is currently uh, Chief Administrative Officer for the Avis Budget Group, which is the parent company of uh, Avis Rent-A-Car, Budget Rent-A-Car, and uh, Budget Truck Rentals. Um, uh, in that capacity, he has many, many different responsibilities, but among his many responsibilities uh, <clears throat> are, are the, I guess, the uh, historical root uh, interests and activities of his. Uh, namely, he is uh, responsible for the oversight of uh, the Avis Budget Group's worldwide uh, human resource activities. Uh, so please welcome Mr. Mark Servadidio. Okay, so I have a confession to make at first. Uh, when I saw the announcement or the uh, invitation and it said non-academic, I thought this was the way my professors were getting back at me because I wasn't such a good student all the time. <laughs> but then I looked at the rest of the panel and when you see the esteemed colleagues on here, uh, it obviously had a very different meaning. Um, I, I think my route is, is, is one that's very different than the ones that, you'll, uh, that you've heard about here. Um, as you heard, uh, going for undergraduate in psychology, my junior year in college, I wanted to really throw myself into my career and figure out, do I want to go be a clinical psychologist? And so I ended up doing a summer internship at the Bronx Psychiatric Center in New York City. And, and I was with people who, these are the people that um, obviously have uh, significant uh, issues. And I came back, uh, it, it wasn't for me, for a lot of different reasons, but it wasn't for me. And I came back and I met with Dr. Bush. I was in deep depression. I said, where am I going to go from here? And we started talking about human resources. And human resources just seemed to be a perfect fit. For those of you that don't know what it is, it's a function in a corporation where you look at the training, the hiring, the development, uh, labor relations, all of the human side of business to make a business work. So, this to me, it just sounded intriguing. So the more I researched it, I said, this is what I want to do. I jumped right into it. And, um, and Dr. Bush you know, remembers me too as well as uh, I thought this was a cruel joke for him, uh, being non-academic. But anyway, it was, it was phenomenal in terms of getting me focused on what I wanted to do in terms of getting into the business world, 
but working on the human side of it. So uh, Dr. Bush, after I graduated, actually got me connected with my first job uh, here locally at Unisys and jumped right into the, uh, an organization that was going through uh, an integration. <coughs> and I immediately got involved with all of the things that I talked about, you know, working on trying to find the right profiles to hire the right people, compensation plans to figure out if you're paying people the right way, training to deliver for the business on those propositions. And, um, and then also started to get involved with labor and employment relations, which is all about negotiating with, uh, uh, with the unions, trying to strike a fair balance between management and the employees and, and having a win-win situation. That led me through a lot of different uh, experiences. I did <coughs> field jobs, headquarters jobs, uh, both national, regional, um, and, and really got to see different parts of the function in, in many different dimensions. And as that progressed over time, what became clear to me and what really made me at the point now where, like you've heard before, I really love what I do. Uh, and I never thought I'd say that when I was sitting in the chair out there. But the reason I love what I do is because of the impact you have on a business. So let me give you a real live example. Right now, and this is, a, this is, this is out in the public, uh, Avis Budget is pursuing a potential acquisition of Dollar Thrifty. If, if you guys, I know you guys, might, some of you might be too young to rent a car, but, <laughs> but the reality, hopefully most of you have heard of those rent-a-car brands, okay? So part of, I've, I've been doing this work now for 20 some odd years. And now where this comes to a culmination is a guy like myself spending a lot of time with the management of Dollar Thrifty, understanding what their culture is, what do the people inside that company do, how do they function, what makes them successful, how do they make and lose money, and how do you potentially put these two organizations together so it works. And it's not like you've heard lots of companies that, that integrate and end up having failures in terms of their integrations. So, where this all comes to a head, so I'll make a long story short so we get you back on track here, is I'm going to, in the next probably two months, have to stand in front of my boss, who's the chairman, and the board of directors, and weigh in on whether this deal makes sense, not only from, from the financial side, even though there's finance people that will be weighing in on that, but in order to make these cultures interact in a way that you can have a synergy with this integration and this acquisition. And that's years of, of work that's led up to that. Now here's the painful truth, and I know nobody probably wants to hear that. And I never thought it when I was sitting out in that chair. Research, the analytics to do this. This is not about what I think or what I feel, it's about the research that's been going on for the last year. Studying the human capital measurements, looking at the performance of the business, and having a fact-based decision as to whether or not this is a good decision. And to let you know what's at stake here, the company's getting ready to spend over a billion dollars on whether they want to do this or not. And, and it's not my sole decision. The chairman ultimately makes that decision and the board makes it. But at some point, they're going to put down their pencils and turn to me and say, what do you think? And that's where the research you guys are going through, understanding human behavior makes sense. Because without that, you don't have the credibility to stand up there and weigh in as to whether this decision makes sense or not. And so that's kind of how it all comes together. And hopefully you guys will read about in the papers that if it happens, and if the deal gets approved, 
and we end up merging. Hopefully you won't read a year later that, you know, the HR guy <laughs> got bounced out because, uh, because of his recommendations. But, but it's a very different career path. It's one that's focused on a business and the human beings that make that business function and make it work. And it's focused on shareholders and board members that expect a return on their investment. And you only get that if you understand the human aspect, but you also understand the powerful uh, elements of the balance sheet and you understand your statistics, you understand your research, and you have a well laid out plan in order to execute that. So a very different journey than some of my colleagues, uh, but, uh, but one that uh, not only do I have no regrets, but thoroughly enjoy today. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you um, to all of the panelists for uh, uh, very interesting uh, introductions to what you do. Uh, now we'll open the, uh, the floor to questions. Uh, what I ask you to do here is uh, I, to, to, to provide some semblance of order, which we may or may not be able to maintain. Uh, I'll stay up here and recognize the question asker. Uh, and when you ask your question, uh, if you have, if you're directing your question, to a particular panelist, please identify the panelist. Um, if you are just asking a general question, uh, then uh, we'll, we'll see uh, who wants to jump on it and, and provide you an answer. But, uh, but uh, identify who you're asking uh, if you can. So are there, are there any questions? OK. <laughs> question for the, the panel for something that I did. I, I finished my degree and went and got an internship and then went back and finished my dissertation. And one of the things that I learned by having done, taken that path were the things that I still wanted to learn. So I wonder if some of the panel can talk about, and we've heard some of it about the critical thinking classes and the statistics classes and how important they are. What class had you not taken in, in school had you wished you had taken? after you've entered your careers. And anyone can talk about that. I can say, I wish I took a marketing class. I do marketing. And I never had a marketing class. Psychology, yes. But you know, what I did is I learned marketing on the job over the years. And now I, I consider that I have an MBA in marketing. Or maybe it's a PhD. <laughs> you know, marketing. You know, I didn't, I was very intimidated by physiology, um, which is amazing because 20 years later I was sitting in neuroscience classes with an MIT professor. So just, I, I wish I hadn't been intimidated. Um, and, and I don't, I, I think the person who taught physiology may be here today. I think I see the face of someone who intimidated me. <laughs> 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 I'm still feel intimidated. Um, but um, but I, I wish I hadn't been because then when I confronted it many years later, I realized exactly something I put we have a um, required internship in our graduate program and we didn't have one in my grad program or in my college experience and internships are very important here at Villanova as an undergrad as well and I wish I had done an internship I worked as a waitress in college um, and an RA in, in grad school and um, you know I didn't know how to dress when I first started working that was one of I remember 
um, at my, my first interview and I said it's the dress business casual and they said well it's it's usually corporate but sometimes you can wear business and I, I said oh okay and acted like I knew what that meant and I had no idea and so I, I would encourage students to if you're majoring in psychology to take advantage of the fact that we have an internship coordinator or if you're in our graduate program the fact that we can help you get internships because that was that that would have maybe shortened my learning curve once I actually got into an organization and for me it was I, I know we had a class the finance for the non-financial uh, people but I, for me it would have been something a little bit deeper in terms of really understanding uh, the balance sheet of a corporation uh, a little bit more deeply so you can kind of understand what the CEO and the CFO look at day to day and then as the chief HR officer and and really kind of put those two things together more tightly I, I would add to that uh, for myself uh, class in management uh, or organizational leadership and things like that again to look at the, those aspects of, of the work that I do and um, feel more a lot of on-the-job training mm -hmm. in, in those areas so. A question over here. Yeah, a lot of you are in a position within your company or organization to do hiring. And over the last few years, a lot of uh, emphasis has been put on um, Generation Y, Generation M, and the business skills and the psychology of people coming into the workforce. A lot of the people in this room. What, what's your reaction to that? Is sort of a general question. And also, what kind of advice would you give to people who are sitting in here thinking about getting jobs in the next few years? Oh, I got a good one for that. Go for it. <laughs> um, <coughs> so. It's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, we probably hire about 6,000 people a year. And, uh, and there's a couple things that I would caution you against as you're heading out into the, into the workforce. You have a preconceived notion of working on, you know, strategy, right? You went through four years of education. You want to just kind of go right to the strategy. And the only point I would say is be, be, take some risks in your career. Take some risks as you start to take jobs that might excuse me, might be more roll up your sleeves. And what I mean by that is instead of just going right for a kind of a corporate job, maybe you do a field job where you're getting frontline exposure to how either an organization works and just know that down the road that that experience is a huge badge of honor when you go to either go for a promotion or go to apply to a different company because you've done it as opposed to just talking about it or thinking about it. And, you know, I took jobs that people advised me against taking because it was less sexy or, or it didn't pay as much, whatever, but I would never change it going back. And, and there is a perception that kids coming out of college today um, don't, you know, may not have the, want to be with a company as long or, or kind of have a shorter attention span when it comes to that. And I guess what I would tell you is, is I find that not to be true, but you have to demonstrate it. You have to show that. You know, don't just assume just because you have the degree that everybody's going to assume where your where your work ethic is, your head is. You got to demonstrate a work ethic and a commitment that you're willing to throw yourself into it, and then a lot of that good stuff will follow as a result of that. Anybody else want to add something to that? Okay. Any other uh, questions? Really? Quite a while ago. And I was just wondering. I mean, I hear all these different jobs. That I mean, my background was in academics. So um, 
what I'm wondering is, let's say, Mark, what you're doing right now, what percent of it do you think had to do with, let's say, what you, what you did academically here at Villanova? And what percent did you just learn on the fly at the job and did on-the-job training? I mean, what, what, I just was wondering how valuable the BA you got was now that you're, you know, really pretty far up in the company hierarchy. Yeah. Um, foundationally, I, I guess I, I'd answer that a couple different ways. Academically, foundation, very important, very strong. And like I said, I didn't like it or appreciate it when I was going through the research process. I didn't like it one bit. But as I look back now and I talk about you know, us putting forward a hypothesis on a business problem. To me, it's unacceptable if the person on my team can't think through how you structure the problem, how you look at attacking that problem, and how you measure the impact of that. Which, you know, whether it was, you know, phobias, which I studied with Dr. Klieger, or it's something business related. So that's, that's three quarters of it. Um, the, the, the other thing is the power of leveraging the faculty. I mean, I, as I look around the room, you know, there are three or four faculty members here, or five faculty members, that personally contributed to my success because I took advantage of them. I, I, I asked for their help, I pushed them, I challenged them, and they responded well to me. So that, to me, is the other piece of this, that is the intangible. It's not just the book work, but leveraging the faculty. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have started in this, in this career if Dr. Bush didn't open up a door. So I think students are crazy if you don't take advantage of the resources at your disposal and, and throw yourself into the work as, as you see it right now. I, I have a response to that, too. I, you know, I do research. so. We, this was an experimental program and a research methods, and so I really used every a lot of what I what I learned here, like even in like learning and cognition, the spacing effect or the, the order effect, the primacy and the recency <laughs> effect, effect. Or, <laughs> like you know whatever you said. Well, the, like if I have to have people rate like a lot of attributes, you know, we make sure we rotate them because if you can't always do the first one, you'd have an order effect, and. Uh, and I, and I always joke, Tom uh, and I, uh, my, my master's thesis worked on uh, a topic of uh, the effects of repetition on judgments of validity. So the, the concept was, the more you hear something, if you don't know if it's true or not, the more you hear it, do you believe it's true? And I think it's directly related to my advertising research. <laughs> because, you know, you may not know if Advil really is the longest lasting food reliever, but the more you hear it, you may start believing it. <laughs> Indeed. You had a question back here earlier. Do you, do you still have it? No? Uh, I'll ask it. Uh, Mr. Donovan, uh, I was interested to hear about your experience with the Art Museum. Have you been back to Tolentine and would you? <laughs> Did the whole entire word down again? <laughs> One wonders why it has not. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, when I was here, long before I ever thought of the fire department, there was a little setup in Tolentine Hall, and hopefully you all know it. It's, it's a beautiful, lovely stone building. 
it burnt to the ground twice. <coughs> and this is what happens to any place that has human occupancy for a long time. We, we people are careless and we burn things down. <laughs> Which is why you need sprinklers. Is Tolentine now sprinkler oh, no. protected? No. So you lose all your <laughs> That's why you need off-site data storage. You lose all your records. Uh, and your experiments are gone. Uh, and I don't know if that's what you're referring to, the fact that it burnt, you knew it burnt down twice. Okay, we're, we're, we're sending the tape of this to the president of the university. Well, my big worry is you're, actually, I, I, when I was still in the fire thing, that one time I saw you, I looked around the campus, but there's a lot of problems here, but I don't. <laughs> the biggest problem is the library. I love the library. I love the stacks Good. and the books in there. If that's not Springfield, you will lose it if you're a 100, 200, 400 year institution. Right. You, you need to, you need to check what you, what you value. A matter of time. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting perspective. Thank you, Tom. There, there was a hand. Uh, Abby? Um, so as someone graduating soon and looking on the job market, what skill sets would you suggest the person advertise the most? And I know it's going to depend on the different careers, but would it be grades or would it be personality? Would it be some combination, like what should we advertise ourselves as being? Yeah. You know, I work a lot of college students in my practice, and I think you just have to advertise who you are. Mm -hmm. um, there's, some, there's some really fascinating research by a man named Jeff Arnett who, at Clark University. Uh, there's actually some argument about whether it's a stage of development. And he talks about this age group being um, an age group where uh, people feel enormous promise and happier than in other times of their lives. Yet if you look at the reality, they go from job to job, they're often at the bottom of the rung, they go from relationship to relationship, and it's, it is just part of that developmental stage of life. So I, I think to, um, you know, folks are getting jobs, it's just that, you know, there is some need to have some acceptance of kind of where the stages of life, of life and what they were talking about before as far as um, establishing a work ethic and a, a pattern of success at, at jobs uh, across the I would just agree with that and that, you know, I, I do a, a lot of interviewing and hiring as well. And by the time, you know, I've gotten to an interview, I've read your resume, I know that you're qualified uh, for the position. I'm looking to see who you are and are you going to fit in with, um, are we going to work well together? Are you going to work well with my team? And so I really want to know who you are and um, the people that are able to, um, that I'm able to get to know, just kind of a sense of that are the ones who do well, and I, and I know, you know, I feel confident that this is the right person. Yeah, then the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, the, your grades and Villanova as a brand is your price of admission. So that's just, that's your ticket in the door. So you do, I don't know if there's any seniors in here, but do not, do not let it drop because that you're competing against people and sometimes companies like ours you know, you kind of look at people with a 3.0 and above to get in the door. Um, so that's your price of admission. And then once you're in the door, then it does become about attitude, work ethic, willingness to learn, flexibility, kind of energy of who you are, and willingness to take a risk, willingness to take a challenge, and let that come across. We have uh, time for one more question. Matt. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not uh, in, in uh, your consumer assessments, whether people are now using neurometric 
assessment tools? <coughs> Their own metrics assessments? No, no, neural metric. Oh, yeah. Not well, you know, they've been doing that since I got into the field 34 years ago. You know, it's like <coughs> galvanic skin response, uh, pupillary dilation. So the, I, the concept was we'll show somebody a print ad, and if their eyes start dilating, they really like the ad. Um, but you know, it never really went that far, and it really was, wasn't really validated. And now there's this resurgence. It's almost like neuroscience is back in. And now they're getting into the, the, the brain waves and the, the, the MRIs of your brain as you're looking at an ad and trying to determine if this part of your brain lights up, it's a positive feeling, and if this part lights up that you don't like it. Um, I think I, I have my own per perceptions of the sophistication of that science, I don't think they're there yet, but they think, you know, of course they're out selling it. And there are big companies, like big companies, buying it and trying it. And they're, they're, they're doing it. And uh, I know we're getting into, at GFK, we're getting into a lot of emotional stuff and we're doing facial encoding. So we're like ho hooking up people's um, faces with like 15, 20 um, connections to feel the different muscles and then we're trying to code if, if these three muscle groups all go, it must mean they, they, they like the ad and if you know they're frowning or they're smiling. So there, there definitely is a, a physiological component to my business and it's still, it's still, I believe, in its infancy, even though they were doing physiological stuff 30 or even before I was there, 40, 50, 40 years ago. It's just, you know, it's just not as satisfying as having somebody say, I like it. <laughs> you know, like, I, that's my feeling. Like I, but we're all trying to get beyond the conscious and trying to get to the subconscious and trying to get to the real stuff because we know that people don't always say what they, they, they don't say what they really feel. Right. <laughs> Okay, we, we are uh, about out of time now. Uh, let me remind you that uh, out in the atrium, right out here, uh, we will have uh, refreshments uh, and a poster uh, session uh, by our current students. You can look at some of the research that they're involved in. And we're going to start again tomorrow at 1 o'clock. So I hope I will see many of you again at that time.